This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of May 26, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 132 of Defender Radio. This week, we're celebrating victories across North America. We'll hear from Cheryl Fink of the International Fund for Animal Welfare, who will explain why the World Trade Organization upheld a European Union ban on the importation of Canadian seal products, and what that means for Canada and our seals. Then we'll be talking with Tara Zuardo of the Animal Welfare Institute in Washington, D.C., who will share her experiences protecting North Carolina's red wolves from coyote hunters. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to thank sponsors and supporters of two recent events we've held. Defender Radio News In April, nearly 100 Calgarians joined us for a celebration of wildlife, where we had wildlife experts from across Alberta share the science and stories of coexistence. Making that event possible were supporters such as photographers Jason Bantle, John Marriott, and Carrie Martin, along with the Alberta Skydivers and White Lotus Jewelry. More recently, in Vancouver, an event at Discover Dogs provided an educational opportunity for residents to learn to coexist in the city. Supporting that event were artists Adele Airy, Vicky Lynn Ray, Tracy Tomteen, Jesse Toso, and Rod Preston. We also would like to thank Discover Dogs, the Vancouver Canadians, Just Beef and Nothing But, The Honest Kitchen, and Zimt Artisan Chocolates. Find out more about our upcoming events and how you can get involved at FurBearDefenders.com. Defender Radio News Seals in Canada are one step to being safer after a World Trade Organization decision to deny the appeal of the Canadian government, who was looking to overturn a European Union decision to ban the import of non-native caught seal products. Cheryl Fink of the International Fund for Animal Welfare has worked long and hard on this campaign and recently joined us to discuss the importance of this victory and what it means going forward. Let's start at the beginning of this whole... This huge conversation that we'll try and keep nice and simple. Um, let's talk a bit about the seal hunt to begin with. Um, th- this is not a new thing. This is not something that has just come up. This has been an ongoing issue. So why don't we, we talk a bit about how the, the public interest in the seal hunt in Canada began. How it, began, how it all began. Well, I'll leave the you know the early days and we'll stick to the the last fifty years or so, which I think is where it gets really interesting. Seals were originally hunted commercially in Canada for for their blubber, which is used to to extract the oil, which was used for heating and lighting and and that sort of thing. And then come the twentieth century, uh, with the advent of electricity, we stopped hunting seals for blubber. And the main product from the hunt turned to fur, which was used for luxury garments, coats, and mitts and boots. And that continued for a while up until around, you know, the 1960s when people started becoming aware of the cruelty of the hunt, the images of baby seals being slaughtered in front of their mothers, the mothers sniffing their carcasses of their babies and crying out. Um, really graphic and horrible images started circulating. And that's when the international outcry and protest against Canada's seal hunt really started. 
um, there's been a few, and I would say that honestly, the seal hunt has pretty much been in decline ever since people started becoming more aware of the cruelty and the welfare concerns. Um, we saw markets for seal pelts start to decline. In 1983, the European Union banned the import of white coat harp seal products, which is the youngest seals, seals under two weeks of age that are still nursing. And that had a, had a tremendous impact on the numbers of seals killed. They dropped dramatically. And it probably would have ended there until the late 1990s when Brian Tobin was fisheries minister. Um, the cod, cod populations, cod stocks had just collapsed and he decided he needed to, to do something to make himself more popular and sort of deflect from the fact that they wiped out the Atlantic cod stocks. And he, he decided to blame seals for the collapse of cod stocks, um, reinvigorated the seal hunt, put millions of dollars in federal subsidies to supporting it, and increased the quotas. And as a result, the hunt rebounded back up um, to levels that hadn't been seen in the previous decades. And that's sort of the hunt that has been going on in, in recent years. It's this sort of revived hunt that has been reinvigorated by the federal government, um, continually propped up by subsidies and dollars from the federal government and sort of creating these artificial markets um, for seal products. Now, again, in the late 2000s, 2009, the European Union realized, I think thanks to the organizations that were still going out to the hunt and documenting and taking video of the cruelty that continued to happen on the ice, even though the seals being killed now were three weeks to three months of age, so a little bit older. Um, and there have been some changes to the regulations, but we were still seeing seals that are hooked while alive and conscious, seals that are being stabbed and cut open while they're still alive, um, examples of cruelty that wouldn't be tolerated in any other animal industry. But of course, because it's mostly out of sight and out of mind, people weren't aware of it. But by the um, by 2009, uh, the European outcry had been sufficient and they enacted a ban on the import of all seal products, not just the young pups under two weeks of age, but all seal products. Um, and that's what Canada has been challenging at the World Trade Organization. Um, they sort of went forth and said, you, you don't have the right to do this. And the exciting thing that we've had, I guess, two victories now. Last December was the first panel ruling from the World, World Trade Organization, which said that, uh, yes, it is legitimate uh, to ban trade and seal products due to animal welfare concerns. And that ruling was upheld by the appeal body yesterday. So a really tremendous victory for SEALs and for the SEAL campaign, I think. Um, you know, there we, we may just be seeing where the SEAL hunt goes now. I mean, there's, there are other few markets for SEAL products. Um, the Canadian government, from its first indication, is that they're going to continue to support the SEAL hunt and stand up and defend the SEAL hunt. But really, I mean, when the World Trade Organization comes out against this, um, it's a pretty final ruling. This ruling from yesterday can't be appealed, and it leaves the door open for other World Trade Organization members to to follow suit and ban seal products, or you know, to implement trade restrictions on any product where there's concerns about animal welfare. So it's very exciting for seals, and I think it, there could be exciting repercussions and impacts on other animal industries as well. Well, I, I think to clarify, first we need to to point out that the cod industry collapsed because of overfishing. <laughs> um, that I always thought that was pretty well known but you know the canadian government likes to make things up from time to time absolutely and all scientific evidence shows that it was, it was overfish, overfishing and mismanagement that caused the collapse of cod stocks it wasn't seals or whales or seabirds or anything like that but of course we'd like to have someone else to blame rather than our own activities and then the the second part of that is that the the there's two hunts in canada and this is something that's uh 
we talk about a lot, uh, I know you've talked about a lot, is there is the Inuit hunt in uh, none of it Northwest Territories, uh, northern Quebec, and northern Labrador, and then there's the commercial hunt uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, could you explain a bit why there's a difference and why that difference is important? They're very, very different hunts. Um, and you're right, there's a lot of confusion. I mean, they're, they hunt a different species of seal. They take place at a different sort of time of year. Um, the commercial hunt on the East Coast targets the very young pups between three weeks to three months of age. Um, and it's primarily a hunt for fur. Most of the meat and the rest of the seal is wasted or left on the ice. The Inuit hunt, on the other hand, takes place throughout the year. It's primarily a subsistence hunt for food, and there may be some secondary use of pelts or commercial use of the pelts that are obtained as a result of that, but it's first and foremost a hunt for food. Um, IFA doesn't campaign against the Inuit hunt or the hunting of seals for food. E even in Newfoundland, um, there's also a personal use hunt where people can take six animals to you know, feed them, feed their family or put in their freezer. That's not really the main, that's not our concern. That's not the target of our campaign. It's this large scale commercial hunt um, for seals primarily for their fur that has a quota of 400,000 animals every year, which makes it the largest hunt of a marine mammal anywhere in the world. That's where our efforts have been focused recently, and that's that's where the European Union's concern lies as well. Um, they had a full exception for seal skins and seal products from Inuit seal hunts. Unfortunately, I think for the Inuit, what happened is the Canadian government, instead of supporting Inuit sealers and you know helping them take advantage of the market access, such as uh, the Greenland government did for Greenlandic Inuit, the uh, Canadian government sort of lumped Canadian Inuit in with the commercial hunt. Um, sort of trying to confuse the fact that these are very different hunts uh, that take place, you know, very under very different circumstances. And uh, as a result, I think Canadian Inuits uh, suffered a loss in the end. Well, and that's something we see with the uh, the Agreement on International Humane Trapping Test Standards, if I could ever get that right, the AIHTS, um, which is a, a trade agreement, in my opinion, and in our opinion, uh, not an actual humane document of any kind. But the, the two similarities that I see are, one, the inclusion of aboriginals, even though aboriginal trappers make up a fraction of a percentage of those who trap in Canada for the fur trade, and also the use of the term humane. And that's something I've seen uh, just in the last couple of days with the, the press releases and the Canadian government statements saying that this is a humane hunt. Uh, but anyone who's ever witnessed it in no way would say that this is humane. The same goes with trapping. Why do you think they continue to pursue that line of thinking that this is in some manner, which it clearly isn't, humane? Absolutely. I mean, as you say, anyone who's seen the video or seen the footage of what actually happened knows that it's not humane. And, um, you know, the first part of that is trying to portray all seal hunting as an Aboriginal activity or a subsistence activity is absolutely false. Um, we know the East Coast commercial seal hunt is, is nothing like that. And very few Inuit skins actually make it into international trade. They're by and large used in the community. So the Inuit involvement in the global trade in seal fur is minuscule. I mean, we can't even find data of Inuit skins going into Europe. So it's a bit of a smoke show, really, trying to, as you say with other fur industries, trying to make, portray it all as, you know, some sort of Aboriginal activity and, of course, trying to portray it as a humane activity, which it's not. When we uh, talk about the EU ban, one of the 
items I saw in some of the documentation was the discussion of a morality clause. And based on my brief reading of the documentation, uh, which stems from my days of a journalist, where I just look at it and then ask someone who actually knows about it, um, the, the morality clause was more or less stating if the government or if the hunters can find a way to do something different in terms of how the activity is conducted, it would count towards the reconsideration. And if I recall in the original appeal, they made very specific note that nothing had been done in terms of that clause. Uh, so what what was that all about? Um, it's probably beyond the depth of my understanding as well, but it doesn't look like there's much that can be done now for uh, commercial sealers. The WTO came down fairly firmly saying that animal welfare is a public morals concern, and these public morals concerns can be used to justify trade bans. And uh, we've seen the, cover- the government coming out saying, well, it has no basis in science or no basis. In fact, it doesn't need to. This is the ruling for today. So it doesn't need to have, you know, a basis in whatever. The European ban did. It was based on over a year of scientific uh, research and review of seal hunts all around the world. But they're saying it's enough for people to be offended and to be upset about animal welfare. It's enough for them to take these concerns and to use them to say, we don't want these products in our country. Um, so that's a very exciting part. And I think, you know, we've been hearing a lot too about this oh, slippery slope. If they ban seal products, then it's going to be and everything else. Well, they said that the first time around too in 1984 after the ban on white coat seal products. It didn't happen. I think there, hopefully there will be some positive aspects that come out of this ruling for other animals in trade and other animal industries. Um, and it's, it, it's positive. I think it shows that the WTO does have some relevancy in this day and age that it can reasonably and you know justly deal with animal welfare concerns and international trade so i think it's it's pretty exciting and that leads me to my my final question which ties back into uh the canadian fur trade as a whole the european union back in the the 70s and 80s made moves to ban any fur brought in that was caught using a leg hole trap. And after years and years of debate, the AIHTS came to be. And that was largely pushed by the Canadian governments. Um, I mean, the Fur Institute of Canada still receives government funding. Um, all of these organizations get government funding. And when we start looking at the numbers of how many people are employed uh, in a full-time capacity, when we look at the number of exports and cash coming in, um, it really doesn't make sense as to why the government is pursuing this so hard. And the same is true with the seal hunt. It it just does not make sense when you look at the numbers. Um, why do you think the government has continued to try and protect these industries that a large majority of people in the world no longer want and organizations are actively working to get rid of. And in the case of fur in general, we're seeing bans come in in the United States and in various European countries. Uh, so what is it that's causing this this pursuit of protection uh, for these industries? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, you know, I used to think, and I guess to some extent I still do, for these politicians, it's all about votes. Um, right now there's a political... There's no political cost for any politician to support the seal hunt, but if they opposed it, they're, you know, they might lose some seats in Newfoundland and on the East Coast. 
But I am a little bit confused these days why the conservative government in particular continues to prop up and promote a seal hunt that was essentially reintroduced by a liberal government, why they continue to support and defend it. It's losing money out every year. It's leaking money every year. It costs more money than it actually requires and that it actually brings in. Um, you know, the conservatives aren't really winning, have, don't have much hope of winning a lot of seats in Atlantic Canada anytime soon. So why do they continue to defend and prop up um, a seal hunt that was reinvigorated by a previous government is a little bit confusing right now. Um, there's probably some aspect of pride in it, I guess, and they want to be seen to be supporting Atlantic Canadians. But at the end of the day, when you look at it, they're not doing anything to support economic development in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. There are far better means um, of use of tax dollars that could help support communities and support people living in remote communities than uh, putting money into the seal hunt. I think we all recognize that there are challenges for employment and economic opportunities, but continuing to put millions of dollars into the seal hunt is not going to be the answer and it's not going to save save these communities. So. Again, I hope this ruling gives them sort of a nice opportunity to extricate themselves from this mess that they've gotten them in. They can say, you know, we've really tried our best to support you guys. It's just not working. The WTO has come down against it now, and it's time to pull out of funding seal hunt and to move on and you know try to find other opportunities. So that's I hope that that's the uh, the next steps that they will take. The initial response, of course, is reactionary that they're going to continue to fight for the seal hunt, but. At some point, we need to recognize that this is a losing proposition. It's losing for Atlantic Canadians, and it's losing for the SEALs. Excellent. And uh, on behalf of APFA and Defender Radio and all of our listeners and supporters, I really want to thank you and IFA for all of your hard work on this campaign. You guys have really led the charge, and we now have a victory uh, for the SEALs of Canada. So thank you. And, and thanks to you. It really is overwhelming as sitting last night thinking about all the people who've been involved in this. I mean, this is something that's gone on for, you know, the band specifically over a decade now. And so many different organizations and so many people, so many supporters have been involved and lent their voice and contacted the, the politicians and really helped to make this reality. So thanks to everyone who's supported this campaign along the way. To find out more about the recent decision and the work of the International Fund for Animal Welfare, visit ifaw.org. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. BearSmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At BearSmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at BearSmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. 
Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. Hi, my name is Beth Naked, and you're listening to Defender Radio. The biggest threat to North Carolina's endangered red wolf population has been hunters mistaking them for coyotes. The two are vastly similar in appearance, and it often requires blood analysis to determine to which species an animal belongs. It was with this knowledge and a strong legal mind that Tara Zuardo and the Animal Welfare Institute in Washington, D.C., were able to get a court injunction protecting the red wolves. Tara joined us recently to discuss this victory. Let's start at the beginning. The beginning is always my favorite place to start. Um, how did uh, the Animal Welfare Institute get involved in this program in North Carolina to protect red wolves? Yes, yeah, so we got involved back when um, the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission is the state agency for all intents and purposes. They don't have um, a state wildlife um, department. Uh, the, the commission itself acts as kind of the state um, the State Department for Wildlife. Um, so they kind of control um, hunting seasons, bag limits, things of that nature. They, they are involved in the rulemakings that govern those, those hunting restrictions and regulations. And they proposed um, to add night hunting of coyotes to the state of North Carolina back in February of 2012. Um, so that's when we turned our attention to the issue because we saw news stories that basically covered the proposal. Um, and the way that they were going to do it was through a permanent rulemaking. And under the state uh, you know, laws for how you go through a permanent rulemaking, you have to do notice and comment with the public. Um, so they initiated that process in February of 2012. And we became involved by submitting comments, encouraging them not to um, not to allow night hunting of coyotes in the state for various reasons. One of the main reasons being um, because of this sensitive species, the red wolf, which occupies about 1.7 million um, acres on the southeast coast in several different refuges, as well as state game lands. The, the recovery area covers both state game, land, game lands, private farmlands, and national refuge land. Um, so we got really um, involved in the commenting process that year, as well as attending the hearings in the state and kind of speaking with people and giving our testimony opposing the night hunting. Um, they went forward with that permanent rulemaking. Um, the caveat in that state is that um, they have several different um, bodies set up to review rulemakings that the commission um, does. And one of those bodies is um, what's called the Rules Review Commission. And they have it in their state laws that if anybody submits, if, if, the, um, if there are 10 letters um, submitted to the Rules Review Commission after a permanent rule has been passed um, that oppose that particular rule, 
the rulemaking cannot go through at that time. It has to be deferred to the state legislature. And so once that permanent rulemaking that allowed night hunting of coyotes went through, we submitted those 10 letters to the Rules Review Commission and the permanent rulemaking could not go through at that time because of those 10 letters. It was deferred to the legislature for the spring of 2013. Um, the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission was very intent on, on starting night hunting as soon as possible of coyotes. So what they did was they went through an emergency temporary rulemaking once we did that so that they could allow for night hunting right away. And once that they did that, we actually brought suit against that temporary rulemaking because um, the state laws in North Carolina do not allow the Wildlife Resources Commission to determine what's called manner of take. Um, the commission is allowed to set up hunting seasons, set up bag limits, but they cannot prescribe manner of take. And what they did with their temporary emergency rulemaking was they added spotlight hunting of coyotes because, of course, spotlight hunting is how you do night hunting. Um, so when they enabled spotlight hunting with a temporary emergency rulemaking, they went outside their authority of what they're allowed to do in, in temporary emergency rulemakings. And so in November of 2012, we actually won our lawsuit against them um, that undid the temporary rulemaking um, and blocked it. So the next step was, of course, that the state legislature was going to look at the permanent rulemaking. And just given the makeup of the state legislature there, they did not, uh, they just allowed basically the permanent night hunting rules to go into effect when they were, their session was done in July of 2013. They started in January and they ended in July. And so once that they ended, just according to state law, that permanent rulemaking that allowed for night hunting of coyotes automatically went into effect. So once that that happened, we sent a 60-day notice of intent to sue over all coyote hunting in the Red Wolf Recovery Area. So we did that, um, I believe, in, um, in the fall, or around July. Um, and then we filed our complaint in October of 2013. Um, so just in short, we had been looking at kind of all of the impacts to wolves over a long period of time. They were reintroduced in the late 80s. Um, into the North Carolina where they were once native, but they went extinct from. Um, the Wildlife Commission started to allow for unlimited daytime coyote hunting in that recovery area in the early 90s. Um, and since they allowed for that, there'd been a very high take rate of these red wolves. They were killed at a rate of 7 to 10% of their entire population each year, just from gunshot mortality. Um, and if you've looked at the pictures of, of how they look, they're very, very indistinguishable from coyotes. Um, it takes a biologist to actually measure their, take their blood and do DNA testing to tell the difference. Um, so the fact that all of these red wolves are found dead from gunshot wounds, the fact that they're found most, uh, most frequently during deer hunting season between August and December, um, is what kind of puts together the picture of, okay, people are going out there and shooting them thinking that they're coyotes. Also the fact that you have report, people re calling in reports saying, hey, I thought I was shooting at a coyote, but it turned out it was a red wolf. And they know that because there's a particular collar around these red wolves so that when you walk up to the body, you can see it says, please call Fish and Wildlife Service if you killed this animal um, or found this animal. Um, so that's been kind of the history of the involvement. Um, I, 
we did we did try to work through some negotiations, some settlement negotiations in the fall after our complaint was filed. Those fell through because we just could not agree on on kind of what needed to be done to protect the red wolves. And um, our injunction was finally ruled on, as you know, on May 13th, after the judge employed a technical expert and advisor, Dr. Michael Chamberlain, to uh, to answer, to go through some questions and answers about facts the judge needed to know about the circumstances there, how the red wolves and coyotes interact, how many coyotes there are, kind of how everything works in terms of the placeholder program, whereby coyotes are sterilized in the recovery area so that they don't breed with the red wolves. Um, you have an you have an issue where you have, if you have hunters killing those sterilized coyotes just because of the nature of coyotes, an intact one will likely move into that area. If it then breeds with a red wolf, then they have to kill those pups because they're trying to preserve the red wolf genetic integrity. Um, so that was a lot of what the judge here was very very con- very interested in the science and in the facts of this case um, and did not seem to be concerned that just because this was what you call a 10J species under the our Domestic Endangered Species Act, that they should have any fewer protections legally than any other endangered or threatened species. He was much more concerned with kind of how everything is interacting down there as an ecosystem and how what decision he could come to to, to benefit all of the parties. Because if you read his opinion, he says, look, based on the science here, Red wolves, just a one breeding pair of red wolves will hold a territory from coyotes. So if the Wildlife Commission and private landowners are really concerned about how many coyotes are in this red wolf recovery area, all we need to do is let this red wolf recovery program succeed and you will automatically have the red wolves taking care of the job of controlling coyotes and keeping them from coming into the territories. So that's kind of the history of February 2012 of the issue through May 13th. That was very succinct. Thank you. Oh, good. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I, when I hear that and, and when I did a little bit of reading about this, my first thought was that for the hunting community that pushed for this, it was a long walk for a short drink. Um, it just it seems like a great deal of effort was put forward against something that just reeks of common sense to me. Uh, if you've got a protected species in an area and another species that looks remarkably like it, one would think you're going to have some crossover when it comes to hunting. So do you have any idea what, what the, the, the push was? I mean, obviously from the, the fish and game, uh, uh, authority from the state legislature and from the lobbies to to try and ignore the fact that these red wolves need to recover, that the biodiversity is that important, and just sort of try and overlook that in order to keep what they consider uh, one aspect of hunting. You know, um, I've tried to kind of figure out what um, what is going on here, and, you know, all I can do is answer instinctively. Um, they are, I know that the Wildlife Commission receives a lot of, calls and complaints about the number of coyotes in North Carolina and a lot of people saying we need more um, methods of dealing with them and hunting them because they're so wily and they're so smart that they're evading us during the day. Um, The tricky thing here is, is trying to kind of come to some common grounds about what the scientifically best way of managing all of these animals is. Um, the upsetting thing is there is a lot of scientific evidence out there that if you lethally manage coyotes beyond a certain level, you actually result in their 
populations exploding. You're probably familiar with these studies. Um, yeah, compensatory reproduction. And it's just, it falls on deaf ears when you try to bring this up, when you try to, they don't, they completely disagree with, with Dr. Michael Chamberlain's um, scientific facts that were provided to the court that Red will <laughs> hold territory, <laughs> you know, that they hold the territory from coyotes. Um, I, I think it's, Dif maybe it's difficult for them to understand that the fact that we wiped out wolves all over the country is what allowed for coyotes to kind of move in. They're um, opportunistic. They, they do really, really well when there isn't, you know, another predator. Um, and so I, I, what I'm having a difficult time understanding is just you can, you can do both daytime hunting and nighttime hunting right now in the rest of the entire state. We're just talking about a recovery area. It's five counties. And my understanding, based on speaking with locals, is people actually don't go to the Red Wolf Recovery Area to hunt coyotes. What ends up happening is they're out there hunting deer and they just shoot what they think is a coyote just because there's this perception that coyotes are interfering with deer population and because there's just this kind of general um, negativity about coyotes in general. And so I don't really see how this is as huge of a deal as, as it's being kind of, um, turned into, um, you have the state now, basically, my understanding is that they are basically, um, asking fish and federal fish and wildlife service to pull the entire program and just move, move the red wolves out of the, out of the state. Um, so it's a contentious issue. And I think it has to also do with just federal state politics here and how this feeling, I think maybe by locals, that the federal government forced these wolves on them, and now they've got their, quote, rights taken away from them to kill coyotes um, out in the recovery area. And what's also strange about this is just there there are allowances right now for you to kill both a red wolf and a coyote. Um, you have what's called the federal 10-J rule that was put in place when these red wolves were reintroduced that basically allows for people to kill them if they need to, if they are in the process of killing livestock or a domestic pet or threatening someone's life or a fish and wildlife service hasn't been diligent about removing them off of private land if someone's called in and asked for that. So you still have caveats whereby people have tools to address issues that they have with red wolves, especially if you're a private landowner. And so what I'm, what's frustrating to me is just that I already see a lot of balance that's been built into this whole thing. It's not like a bunch of wolves were just unleashed in some urban areas and, and people are just at a loss for what to do. They're fairly elusive animals. They don't really bother anybody. They don't really prey on livestock. Um, in fact, some of the farmers down there appreciate them because they prey on nutria, which are a non-native species that are interfering with the crops. And there are, of course, a lot of tools available to private landowners to manage them. You even have one particularly vocal landowner down there who's complained so many times to the Fish and Wildlife Service that he has been granted a permit to kill red wolves on his land. So, what I, and the same thing applies for coyotes if they're caught based on the injunction. Um, if if a coyote's causing a problem in that area, you can kill it in the same way you can kill a red wolf. So, um, I'm trying to understand what this is all about, and, and I think it's just um, a lot of frustration about outside influence telling people in North Carolina what they can and cannot do. That's my best guess for what's going on. 
Well, and that's very reflective of what we see in Canada. Um, we, for instance, have a spring bear hunt issue right now in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And in northern Ontario, you've got people saying we have to have it. It's important. Right. And everywhere else, people are saying the science doesn't support it, uh, including the government science, which was contradicted in the creation of the policy but i guess the the thing that's frustrating for me and and i'm curious whether or not this is something that um uh, weighs on you is we know that interfering with an ecosystem can be catastrophic and we know that the reintroduction of wolves is so vital mm. um yellowstone national park remains one of the most um convincing arguments it's been you know done anecdotally it's been done scientifically for years and years and years Mm -hmm. the ecosystem was dying they reintroduced wolves the ecosystem is now thriving yet people don't want to believe that and policy is regularly made that directly opposes these facts and again as you said uh it's kind of incredulous that you've got a leading scientist Mm -hmm. presenting scientific fact not opinion or theory Mm -hmm. but fact and they are saying, well, that's just not true. I mean, in a legal opinion, how do we in any way manage that argument when you've got the bulk of a scientific community saying one thing and lobbyists with a vested interest saying, well, that's just not true and government siding with the lobby? Right. And <laughs> what it all turns on, and I can't, I don't know if this is the case in Canada, but it all turns on what the federal agency here in the States does and who they listen to and what the politics surrounding the issue are, because you have a huge divide, at least with the red wolf issue between the fish and wildlife service, red wolf recovery program, which is all the biologists that care about these wolves that are out there in the field, doing the pup reintroductions and all of that. And then you have kind of the folks off in the office in Atlanta and in DC who are somewhat removed from the folks in the field that are doing a lot of the work and who they decide to listen to and why. I know that um, the commission is trying to dismiss Dr. Chamberlain's um, advice to the court saying that he is a part of the Red Wolf recovery team and hence he is biased. Um, But in this particular instance, at least in the states, we really need laws that mandate use of best scientific evidence available because in that particular instance, then our agency really has to show on the record that it has listened to the best available science. And so that's an instance where the scientific community really has an opportunity to, to seriously um, influence decisions. If you look at our gray wolf delisting, you have, uh, you have a scientific review of the decision that basically said this is not based on best science available. And now the agency has to basically put that on the record and make its decision. And if they make the decision to delist, they will no doubt face serious lawsuits saying that they did not rely on best science available. So, you know, in short, I think it depends a lot on what the the law says and what the agency kind of where they lean towards. Um, you know, it would be so much, it would be so helpful if we had a lot more outreach to landowners and people who are concerned about human wildlife conflict of actual tools that they can use to, to deal with these perceived issues. Um, you know, one program that we run is called the Christine Stevens Wildlife Awards, and they basically provide $10,000 grants to scientists that are developing these exact tools, you know, looking at the use of livestock protection dogs, looking at electric fencing, 
looking at all of these different non-lethal deterrents that can be used to kind of decrease this human wildlife conflict issue. And we've got, we've got to maybe make a better effort to get these tools out to these communities and to kind of build those bridges because otherwise it's just going to be two different sides. One saying, I don't believe in the science. The other saying, well, science is science. And, and, you know, not a lot of dialogue between the two. It's everything coming down to politics and, yeah, I mean, you're right. In the, in the instance of all these ecosystem benefits, wolves are so incredibly important and there have been so many problems that have spilled out in this ripple effect from lethally managing them in this country. One of those problems being coyotes, <laughs> um, you know, which I don't personally, you know, see as, as an issue, but I live in D.C. And, you know, I understand that they, I mean, they are braver in many instances than wolves are when it comes to livestock and, and interacting with people and being close to human communities. So it would be good if people kind of stopped and started listening to some of the scientists that are talking about the ecosystem <laughs> benefits. And yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, that's something that we really, really push is the coexistence programs. Um, we're actually on tour next week doing uh, beaver installations in a couple of communities and meeting with municipal uh, planners um, simply on the su- subject of beavers. Uh, we work with an organization called Coyote Watch Canada, and we really push the coexistence with coyotes um, because it's, it's truth. It, very simply, it is easier, it's more cost efficient, and it works long term. Um, and that's something that, uh, I think it's, it's, we're seeing bits and pieces of it come through. Um, and hopefully with time, as we keep doing it one community at a time, uh, it'll get, get bigger and bigger. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you, uh, we talked about this case specifically about protection of the Red Wolves in North Carolina. What about the big picture? Because this is not an issue that is confined to North Carolina. Uh, the persecution of wolves and coyotes across the United States is well documented. It is in Canada as well. But unlike Canada, there are pockets of the United States where wolves are considered uh, endangered or at risk or special concern. So what could this ruling mean for other states or other areas where people are having the same debate uh, ongoing? Yeah, um, I don't know much about the Species at at Risk Act in Canada. Um, I know that it is kind of the analogy to our Endangered Species Act here. It does have some flaws in terms of the listing process. Um, You know, it's kind of not a lot of citizens can get involved. It's a separate body. Um, You know, if there are social, economic, or political impacts, it can kind of come into the listing process. That's very different here in the States. In terms of the listing process, you absolutely have to rely on best science available and only economic and other impacts can only come in in critical uh, habitat designation process later on. Um, But, you know, it really kind of depends on what the status of the animal is under the, 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 the law. This particular case is going to have a lot of implications for what we call 10J species. Um, 10J species under the ESA are species that have gone extinct in the wild, where the last few were, were gathered up and bred in captivity and then reintroduced in the wild. So the wolverine is another example out here. Um, typically, these species under our domestic ESA have been treated kind of like second-class citizens. They've always been given less protection than, quote, regular threatened or endangered species. 
Um, this case has a lot of implications for those species in it in terms of setting a precedent whereby they can't be given this kind of second-class citizenship when they're reintroduced into a state that Congress would not have put so much, allowed for so much money to be put into their recovery um, and set up the law the way that they did um, if they intended for them to just be these experiments where they put them out in the wild and the state can do whatever it wants, including, you know, this wanton, reckless, negligent hunting of an identical looking species in its recovery area. So this particular case has a lot of implications for 10J species in particular. In terms of, of other wolves like gray wolves, you know, that's that's a tricky situation because they you have, you know, you had a... Con- a delisting at the congressional level of those in the Northern Rockies, which is the first ever where Congress has done a delisting rider um, because that process is supposed to be based on science. And, um, you know, and so I have some concern about that moving forward for other species that are, quote, contentious with populations. Um, But in terms of gray wolves, you know, that at that's the stage at which, you know, they just had this peer review report that was done that basically said Fish and Wildlife Service is not relying on best science in this proposed delisting for, for all gray wolves in the lower 48. Um, and so you're going to have, if they move forward with the delisting, you are undoubtedly going to have a lot of lawsuits under the ESA pursued saying they did not rely on best science available. Um, in terms of implications for Canada and other, you know, and other places there, I would just say it's entirely dependent on how the ESA works and what the case law is, or I'm sorry, how SARA works and what the case law is for SARA. Um, you know, if there's any chance for for the public to have any influence on this independent science advisory body, the uh, Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada, that would be kind of a good place to to have it. Um, and, and just to to try to get as much science as possible built into different processes. Um, I don't know if you guys have rulemaking opportunities, um, anything like that. Um, and I'd have to look a lot more into kind of what the benefits are once that they are listed and what the case law says. Um, but wolves are going to, it's going to be a difficult thing because they're so political everywhere. Um, so I think just working in conjunction with influencing the law, influencing the scientific body, um, and then providing a lot of tools to these communities that are making this political, that quote, hate wolves and want to hunt them. Tools that are available for any kind of perceived, you know, impacts to human populations or livestock populations. Here in the States, sometimes we have this um, compensation program where if you can prove that your livestock was taken by a wolf, and this is something that Oregon and Washington have done, um, you get compensated. You basically get money. And it was it was set up by a, a nonprofit organization here called Defenders of Wildlife. And now it's something that the state government has taken over and is now paying out of pocket for um, to kind of decrease some of that opposition also just more education on the benefits, the ecosystem benefits you mentioned that wolves provide. You know, the fact that they they kill these nutria in North Carolina that are causing problems is something that I think because farmers have seen it with their own eyes, they're not one of the vocal oppositionists, op- opposition to red wolves. 
I think you have a community down there that has not yet seen that red wolves with their own eyes can hold a territory from coyotes. Because if they did, I think we would remove a huge portion of that vocal opposition. So we've got to find some way of reaching this political opposition and sh- and just letting them see with their own eyes what the benefits of wolves are. Because if you, if you show them that they actually end up helping the elk population or the deer population thrive because of, you know, what Aldo Leopold said many years ago, or if you see that they're holding territories against these more bold species, non-native species, um, I think we're going to get some of that opposition and that political blowback down and maybe make it easier for even this Canadian body to allow for, for the species to be listed and protected. So. To learn more about the Animal Welfare Institute, visit awionline.org. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank our guests, and as always, Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control, for their ongoing support of this program. To learn more about any of our guests or subjects mentioned, visit furbeardefenders.com. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.